Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX. Welcome to the SDGX Texas uh, podcast. We are back again, um, really discussing about what's going to be happening in the near future with respect to as far as founders, entrepreneurship, innovation, investors. And today's session, we've got a a good friend of mine coming on, Andy, and uh, we're going to have a really interesting discussion. There is a real hunt for talent. Talent is one of the most valuable resources a startup can have, an investor searches for, and it really supports the mission of going forward, expanding, scaling, all these things. But I'll hand over to Andy to introduce herself and to tell us a little bit, Andy, about sort of what you're doing now, but how you got there. Thanks, David. And so wonderful to catch up with you and the TechSource team. Um, So a little bit of background about how I got here is I spent the last two two decades uh, working with high-performing leaders and executives in from, from early-stage startups to corporates around the world. And, in fact, I spent the last six years uh, in the startup ecosystem um, as an early-stage investor, scouting the top entrepreneurial talent around the world to invest in. And so as I was scouting all of these early stage founders, I was using a data-driven tool called Fingerprint for Success. And so in my discovery working with these high-performing entrepreneurs, I got to really learn the key motivations of what makes them successful and unsuccessful. Um, so I'm you can call me a data geek. I'm absolutely obsessed uh, with data, with entrepreneurs, with startups, with technology and innovation. So I've been really lucky. I've spent um, running over 300 sort of uh, pitch competition events in which you have been involved in also um, and looking for these talent. um, I really, really deeply got to understand some of the inhibitors of what holds entrepreneurs back and I got to see the ones that were able to have multiple exits or multiple successes, what were those motivations and what's the environment that sort of best sets them up? Uh, So I actually have joined one of my portfolio companies, Fingerprint for Success, after spending uh, years as an early stage investor and running all of these events and incubators and 22 accelerators that I now help full-time help teams grow and scale their leadership. I mean, I've got this question. I've got actually I've got two questions. I've got one question and it's really around entrepreneurship, not founders, but I mean, can entrepreneurs be created or are they just sort of born with the skills of being an entrepreneur? But at the same time, I've got a bit of insight into fingerprint for success. And the you're really not looking, it's, it's not a psychological test in a normal sense, anything else. You're looking for behaviors and how behaviors match with other behaviors. And these types of things. So let me go back to the first question then. Can, can, entrepreneurs, can entrepreneurs be created? Can you train an entrepreneur or is that a skill that you're sort of born with? 
That's an excellent question, uh, David. And so I'll share a little bit of history just to answer that question. So Fingerprint for Success, the founder um, and CEO, Michelle Duval, I actually came to know her through my two other co-founders. She was their coach. Um, She's one of the pioneers in coaching psychology and development. And she led a 20-year groundbreaking longitudinal study of successful founders and founders who actually failed in their their ventures. And so running this 20-year, looking at all the statistical correlations of cognitive behaviours or, you know, what we call the cognitive sciences, looking at these behaviours and traits of these entrepreneurs, we're able to benchmark and study, wow, the ones that had exited between 6 million and 1.2 billion had these 10 top behaviors um, in in terms of um, being able to have those multiple successes and being able to look at all of the factors that correlate to venture failures as well. And so based on this benchmark, we're able to immediately um, look at uh, the tool. There's a simple survey, takes 10 minutes to do. So we'll look at 48 different motivations of how you like to work when you're at work. And based on this this simple tool and based on the study that we did, looking at the gaps. So the first question, yes, there are people, there are entrepreneurs that are born with those sort of behaviours and their traits naturally. And we're also um, in the six years that I've been running accelerator programs, entrepreneurs can also be created. If three things, if you, um, depends on their support structure. So what did they, and what I mean by that is what is the awareness that they have depends on what the gap is um, and what we've been able to help um, entrepreneurs when they, they know what the gap is. Um, and then and then the second part is then having the discipline to change and once they have that awareness on the gap. And so having a coach that's able to reflect what that gap is. So we've been very lucky. We've helped companies. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, an Australian tech, what they call a Decacorn now called Canva. You know, recently they hit uh, 15 billion in in valuation and a big goal was to hit 500 million revenue. So they've been a great case study for us, helping these uh, founders and leaders scale themselves, scale the other leaders in the business and scale the entire company and scale the culture to kind of continually evolve and grow based on these gaps and benchmarking um, against this this 20-year study that we've been doing. Well, yeah, but to take it then further then, because you and I have both been on the startup side, on the founder side, you and I have been both been on the investor side. And it's really quite a different perspective from each side of that table. But what what is the key thing that turns an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur into a successful founder? Because believe me, it doesn't come natural in a lot of ways. You may have a lot of creativity. You may have a lot of ideas. You understand the marketplace, you're seeing gaps, you're putting patterns together, but that is not going to make you a successful founder. So what, what is that sort of key thing that sort of makes you a successful founder? And just give a little bit of history of that. I also work a lot with the Hulk Prize, um, which is um, sponsored by the United Nations. It's a $1 million annual prize given to a lot of these startups that focus on sustainability. And it's a question that I got asked when I was talking to them just recently I mean, how can I be a good founder, um, come up with more ideas, these types of things? I'm going, no, it's being a founder is a lot different than being an entrepreneur. So what is the key thing? What makes a founder? I guess the key thing that we've discovered is there sort of is an optimal ideal range of 
One, being able to initiate. So initiation is really important to put the ideas into action. So being able to execute on the ideas. The next part of that is having enough reflection and patience to at certain points pause and reflect, hey, is this the best way? Should I be engaging other stakeholders? Should I be getting, you know, advice? And so there's this this range of being able to make comfortably make decisions. Um, so, so one of the key factors we know is making decisions at speed. So, you know, the speed to market, the speed to that product market fit, the speed to be able to raise that next capital raise round so that you can go on that growth journey. So, and and when we look at speed, it's a number of key factors around what we call internal reference, so being comfortably, being the authority, making decisions on your own, doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Um, And then, but still having that optimal range of what we call external reference, which is being able to take advice, feedback, and data, whether it's from your customers, from your stakeholders, from your investors. And so there's this optimal range for founders. If you're able to kind of be in that, have that awareness of that optimal range, because you're kind of too much or too little of anything puts you, can set you back. And so um, so that's one of the keys. It's, it's speed and then being able to put your ideas into action and then quickly evolving and learning from that. So, you know, is it working, not working? Okay, how do we rapidly test change um, and, and then get that closer and closer to that product market fit so that you're then ready, ready, ready for growth and scale? And what is the situation with founders now? I mean, here we are in this sort of, one would say the tail end of the pandemic, though one doesn't know um, where we're going in that sense. And all of a sudden, because of COVID, we've been sort of pushed into the digital transformation. We've been pushed into this conversation that a lot of people have been talking about for years. Not many have prepared themselves. And all of a sudden, here we are. I mean, what are the biggest challenges you're finding when you're when you're mentoring and coaching um, with a lot of the startups that you're working with? What is the biggest challenge they're finding right now? There's just multiple sort of myriads of uh, challenges at all sorts of levels. So, you know, um, being able to immediately have to work out a remote working policy, you know, how does how does and then and then being able to identify just even in that communication or that setup, you know, what what sort of processes or procedures, especially for members in the team that get so much value out of that sort of interaction in the office, whether it's the banter and going, hey, David, can you check on this? So that's the first part, the actual physical environment and the new ways of communicating, you know, there's been lots of studies at the moment just you know, um, being inundated on Zoom calls. There's actually a case study where watching, um, you know, constantly seeing faces, whether it's close up or distance, like that's activating sort of flight or, you know, fight modes of, you know, the the psychology. And so, so seeing some of those things, but so those, that's, that's kind of the first layer. The next few layers is a lot of leaders are not knowing how to navigate, um, you know, conversations. And so if you've got global teams, like so if you right now have a team in India or the Philippines or different parts of Europe where you've been in extreme periods of lockdown, you know, and then you've got other people, you know, like in Sydney or Singapore where I am, where we're able to business as usual, we're able to socialise with friends, go out, you know, do so the sensitivity of, you know, um, when you're framing meetings that you're meeting every everyone where they are and being aware of, you know, um, exactly, you know, that 
how to engage in a way so that the other leaders still feel engaged at work. And then also knowing the challenges of now for the first time, you are now having to be a worker, a parent and a teacher all concurrently at the same time. And so, so you know, and then so so really managing uh, the well-being of your, your talent and your workforce. So navigating all of those things and then re- the next biggest thing is can you replicate your business um, entirely, this digital transformation? Can you acquire customers digitally now? Like everything you have to now kind of quickly work out how do we do workshops, physical workshops in a digital format? How do we, you know, acquire our customers if we're used to going to see our distribution partners or visit, visiting certain factories or labs of what the prototype looks like? Like, how do you do all of those things in this new way? So leaders are now kind of faced with just myriads of all those different levels of, you know, motivating a, a very challenging time of their workforce, how to upskill leaders. A lot of the, the next level um, that they have is having leaders who are first-time leaders. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the founders we see are first-time founders and first-time leaders. And so not having that experience or the the language or the communication to engage at all those different levels. But that's, you know, some of the things that we're seeing at the moment, just, um, you know, people just reacting, going, okay, we need to roll out this new strategy. We need a new hybrid plan. Like half the people in the office, half the people on the call, how do we now run this call? And and so like all of these sort of uh, new hybrid models that are actually uh, being born in this sort of new digital era. It was because I was reading some research recently that was saying that the initial euphoria, the flexibility of working home from home, the freedom of not, you know, being under the eyes of your supervisors all the time, this kind of stuff, that the euphoria is fading out quickly and moving in the same direction as, as some would say social media is moving into that um, it's becoming a bit demoralizing, having the, you know, the lack of personal contact and these types of things. Plus, what's really difficult to do in a virtual sort of situation environment is handle the politics. The politics are really difficult. I mean, when you're face-to-face, when you go grab a coffee, when you can actually sit in a meeting and sort of hash out some disagreements, it's all nice and cozy when everybody agrees on Zoom. But how do you manage disagreements on Zoom? And especially when you're in, you know, high risk areas, certainly on the investor side of that, where you really have to discuss things that have failed, things that are not working as good as they should be. And how do you get that, you know, how how do you experience that tension that you need sometimes to get some of these feelings across and some of the urgency, some of the priority of of some of these discussion points that you need to get across? So I, I was reading that and I was just fascinated by this. So I'm under the impression where everyone thinks that, you know, when, when when the pandemic is over and sort of the new normal is everybody works from home, everybody's decentralized, everybody's, you know, in the village, on the beach, in a bunker, doing that. I'm, I'm starting to think quite the opposite is going to happen, that we are actually going to move back into a very accelerating and very human sort of uh, approach to getting back to business when it all comes down, especially in the startup scene um, where founders, I mean, you know, pressing the palm, meet and greets, coffees, you know, moving the room, these different types of things are so important. Yeah, I totally agree with that, David, because 
you know, in my years of running incubations and acceleration programs in co-working spaces, that collision of ideas and discussions that you have are a really key part of innovation and cross-collaboration. Um, I also, my prediction is that, you know, co-working space um, is now going to be the new norm. Like people are just going to be not having such long-term sort of assets and leases where, you know, they're only utilising 30% of the space. Um, and so I, I feel like, you know, co-working space is going to really come back because people who genuinely thrive on that interaction, you know, are so much more productive that, you know, you come in and um, you're not distracted by your home environment and depends on your home environment as well. Um, I'm seeing just in really, really, really incredible burnout that's happening right now. Like this, this sort of new digital format that you're doing, you know, all time zones, you know, responding to Slack emails, you know, WhatsApp (laughs) messages, like every sort of, you know, digital comms and people not having the discipline because of being able to turn it off because you're at home and then immediately having to do all the other responsibilities that you may have home, whether you've got kids or, you know, so there's kind of this blurred and people just burning out because they don't have the separation and that was the great thing about going into a physical space. When you left that, you can kind of, you know, close your laptop or computer and you can pick it up the next day that this constant um, being on Um, you know, in the studies that we've seen, um, people are just not able to turn off. So people are really struggling uh, to sleep, struggling with nutrition, struggling with their, you know, sitting on their kitchen chair and they're not properly set up and, you know, if they don't have a proper office. Um, So they've got back pain, neck pain. We've certainly have people in our team who, you know, have all sorts of like risk issues. Um, So all of those disciplines that you know, you you didn't have to think about when you went into the workspace. You now have to do that for yourself. Um, so we're seeing just yeah, crazy rates of, of burnout and, and people, you know, and then you touched on just teams that the way that you're communicating, getting this robust um, discussion on Zoom. And, and so one of the things that we measure inside the platform is your level of motivation for what we call affective um, effective communication, which is you want to see the reaction of the person. So I'm an example of that person. I love seeing a person who is smiling or your body language. And so the the other one that we measure is neutral communication, which is they don't need to have their cameras on. They're listening out for the specific words that are used. And so so people worldwide, if you don't know exactly what that person's communication style is, you could feel like, oh, my God, I'm just talking to these blank full, you know, full screen and I feel like I'm talking to myself and I feel like I'm, you know, getting sick of just seeing myself on the screen. And so the communication at the level it was before, it's actually, it's not only you're not building that deep rapport, but you're also not being able to read each other as well. And so this in addition, let's say if you use Slack as a communication channel, that if you're not getting that on the Zoom call or the way that you're communicating with Slack is you could have a lot of miscommunication that's been happening. And I've certainly seen that in, in um, lots of teams that we've been helping to navigate. So you could be really short on, the, on the, the Slack or you could be reading, you know, certain messages and going, oh, my God, David, why why would you say that? Or um, why is that all in caps? And so there's just lots of little, you know, sort of the communication things that you now need to navigate. And so knowing if this person needs to see something, hear something, read something, or be doing something on a call is going to be useful because otherwise 
It could be having the same meetings, could be repetitive and not have that sort of traction or growth or getting 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 actual stuff done in this new digital format. Well, I think so. I mean, I keep looking for that digital click. You know when you click with someone? And and how does that happen digitally? Because you know, when you when when you're when you work within a startup situation and you've got your core team put together, and core teams are so important. And sort of that repertoire of, you know, sort of unspoken words that you have with your core team, they just sort of know and they can read you and understand exactly what you were saying. And then things just have to click when you meet a new customer, a potential customer, when you meet new staff or ideas come in, things happen to click. And they click in the group sort of sense, right? So, and how does that happen online? I keep looking for that and I haven't found it yet. And maybe... Maybe somebody will come up with something that someone to solve that. But it also goes into this area of sort of, how can I say this, sort of feeling comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. And especially now when we start to look to the near future, that, you know, these six big clusters of new technologies coming down the pipeline, you've got market dynamics that have unseen before, you've got consumer behavior um, really opening up. We've also got a value system introduction, impact, sustainability, green, clean. We've got this sort of entering into that whole side and it's being driven by consumers that want to, to buy much more friendlier products and services, earth-friendly, people-friendly. Um, we've seen it by investors that are shifting in that direction too. We're also seeing it from the public sector looking at certain types of legislation around creative economy, for example, recycling. These types of things. Um, how does this all fit into what you do? I mean, has your shtick, for, for lack of a better word, has it changed over the last 10 years and now it's got to change drastically again to sort of bring in all these sort of new variables in the equation? Yeah, I think it definitely has changed in the last 10 years. I've, our prediction is so much of the new sort of entrepreneurs or startups is going to be around collaboration. How good are you at collaborating? And it's about communities. And so I feel like a lot of the new sort of sustainability, um, impact work, like, you know, these are set up like lots of foundations and networks have been set up. And so if you have that natural inclination to collaborate, I think you're going to be way ahead in terms of setting up the systems of, you know, different distribution partners, setting up whether it's, um, you know, just like the the whole supply chain that is actually working together. So I feel like there's something definitely around sort of deep tech innovation. There's there's going to be that new emergence. I I just feel like, you know, all the companies that we're seeing now depends on how well they, they all kind of collaborate um, that, that sort of entire supply chain. Um, what we're seeing also is for those who haven't needed to naturally collaborate, if you were a, say a marketplace platform, you kind of have that old sort of, you know, go to market strategy where the first in market, you know, where the, you know, the first, you know, right cab riding, you know, ride sharing, um, you know, app with the first this. I think it's. I think a lot of it's going to change in order for it to be sustainable, um, and that depends on the systems that need to come together and support that that change. But there is definitely something around 
communities, um, funding around collaboration. Um, we've certainly seen the, the fastest growth tech companies are the ones that are sharing information. So if I look at Canva again or HubSpot, they're setting up digital academies of learning. It's free information. Go and learn it. And so people can come learn and then collaborate. And they're building these huge communities of, um, you know, Atlassian's another one where they've got like a marketplace of apps where you can API into all the different apps. And so I feel like this, the future of a lot of these tech businesses is how do you set up these marketplaces for collaboration and more and more people to easily plug into each other, easily being able to um to really understand each other's tools, I feel like that is going to be the, the new emergence of the, the new types of uh, technologies. Are, are you seeing a change in the perspective from the investor side? I mean, we've talked about, you know, this concept of impact VC or the VC model from the old Silicon Valley days is sort of broken. So you can't just throw money at a startup and expect it to do something, right? Because Everyone's been through. We've got 20 years of it now, so that's got a. There's a disruption coming into that type of um, financing and impact. VC, you know, obviously they're they're looking at positive market returns, market market plus returns, um, but they're also looking at this concept of impact. And there's a whole you know a variable gray zone of different definitions around whether it's impact first, mission first, all these different types of things. But from the investor, when investors are really talking to you about how they should be selecting founders or how they should be not selecting, let's say, let's say evaluating or supporting even, helping, you know, how, how can they do that? Are you seeing a perspective change there? Yeah, I'm seeing a big shift at the moment. What's really interesting is previously, you know, there was this concept of, you know, the, the more capital you have, you know, the the better your capacity and capability to buy the talent and acquire mm-hmm. the talent and, and sort of grow and scale the business. And I've seen in the last few years, you know, I, I know a startup where they raised $233 million, um, and then died 18 months later. And so thinking, how is that even possible? Um, and so what we're seeing is the big shift is a lot of the new investors are now moving towards what we call a venture building model that how do we actually come in, understand what the gaps are, how do we help, you know, whether we put someone in, you have a part-time CFO or a CTO that runs the operations, that hires the talent or that trains that first-time founders. We're seeing a lot of those types of, you know, venture-building models um, that are investing but also going on that, you know, building the skills and capabilities, being able to hire the talent um, to help these sort of first-time founders and also setting up, communities of their their portfolio so one of one of the investors um one of the vc uh, vcs in southeast asia known as quest and so they assign a portfolio company that's already been on that journey so that's already been ahead of you so if i was rating my seed capital they'll assign you someone who's already raised their series a and then series a they'll assign someone to series b so that you're just one so that that person's actually learning and getting mentoring from a founder that's just done exactly what they need to do right now in terms of focus. And so we're seeing lots of those types of VCs. And, and so it's been very hands-on, I've seen, as part of the due diligence process. Um, 
I recently ran an investor training session on how to do due diligence using sort of data analytics. Um, so investors are really, really keen on not now and understanding that that the what we call human skills or soft skills previously is a very key part of scaling themselves as leaders. So how do I lead myself? How do I lead a team? Now, how do I lead an entire organization? And so culture comes on, it comes, it becomes a really big part. Um, and so we're seeing lots of companies now who have just kind of blown up and you see lots of, you know, you hear lots of sort of toxic, you know, culture horror stories. Um, and so, so that's a, now a really key part that I think investors are now investing in. And I've also seen investors now investing in those types of tools and businesses that really help with the sort of behavior change, implementing behavior change. Are you, are you seeing the development of sort of a, a talent management sort of opportunity here? Because as, as you know, I think as most people know, talent is tough. Now. We're, in this, we're in this very transformational sort of time where a lot of people were learning a lot of old skills that really won't be that useful in the future and not enough people are learning the new skills that will be very valuable in the future. And we've also got an age, bit of an age divide that a lot of the older generation that are really getting into entrepreneurship based on their experience, where a lot of the younger generation now is feeling competition from older entrepreneurs coming in. But, um, but are you being asked to be a bit of a talent scout for investors? That's a Well, I'm going to challenge you on this topic overall. I feel, you know, I recently did a um, a panel on cognitive diversity, um, and um, one of the things is just around talent management or talent or the recruitment of talent. Recruitment has not changed for the last five decades. You know, people are still, you put a job description, you're, you know, uh, interviewing for the hard skills and based on, you know, the that, that sort of criteria of X number of experience or what their skills, you then go through that interview process. And so already from, I've, from the get-go, because that part has not been changed, whilst people talk about, you know, we're trying to hire on culture fit or aligned on values, the number one thing people still hiring talent is based on, you know, your CVs and, and, and you know, what are, it's sort of the technical, what we call the hard skills. So around the question around the opportunity around talent is that right now everyone's reevaluating is this the right role for me? Do I feel that I have the biggest impact? I'm seeing so many people doing career shifts, you know. Um, so I feel like the opportunity right now, people have more time during COVID, they're at home thinking about what else, you know, what else should they be doing? What, you know, if given, given you know, the state of, you know, potentially people's health could be at risk, what is it? And so people just are re-evaluating re their, their careers and obviously, um, careers are being impacted by the speed of, you know, robotics, machine learning. Um, so I feel like the the opportunity that, you know, the question around are we being used for talent scout, it is yes, um, the big, big, big mm. opportunity. And what I'm so excited about is as we start to build what we call success factor models, which is we go and study the same way we study founders and successful entrepreneurs, we go and study the best engineers in the world, the best data scientists in the world, the best people and HR leaders in the world, the best salespeople in the world. And based on, you know, that range of their motivations, we're going to be able to 
be able to benchmark the same way we're doing right now with the entrepreneurs and, and, and founders that we do for investors, we're going to be able to see, hey, guess what? David has a 86% match to a data scientist. You probably can go from investing in impact to becoming a data scientist because you have this high bias and motivation for information, for, for numbers. And so it's going to be great to be able to now identify what are the motivations of these top sort of domain, um, you know, occupations and being able to give people Oh my God, I, you know, I'll use myself as the example. I'm a civil and mechanical engineer. Um, and I kind of fell into to sales because of my love for data. I was like, well, this is easy. I just follow what the marketing data tells me, follow what the customers want. And I use the data and I the same approach that I, you know, from my civil engineering, how to use data to solve problems. Where's the evidence? We're always looking for the evidence. And that's the same way I sort of fell into sales. And then I fell into tech startups. I fell into coaching. But it's, you know, on that same, because of my love for data. And so I think there's this great talent opportunity. Now imagine, you know, being able to do, find the LinkedIn of motivations. So I don't care if this, let's say, intern or this student, whether they have a, you know, aeronautical engineering background, whether they're a, you know, biologist, whether they're, you know, um, just previously worked at Starbucks. Based on their motivations, they have the energy and the drive to be really a successful HR person. They have a natural curiosity for people. And, and then in addition to that, based on these CVs as part of that recruitment process, you won't know if this person's male or female, whether they're 18 or 65, uh, whether they studied at Harvard or MIT or they didn't finish high school. Um, so you can be so I feel like when we when we talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, I feel like being able to, you know, look at, wow, I put out this job ad and, you know, what's critical for this role would be strategy, people, um, you know, uh, externally referencing others, which is, you know, collecting data about other people, um, that the platform, this LinkedIn of motivations being able to go, well, here you go. Out of all the people, we're going to ping these top, you know, 200 people and based on your criteria, here are the 10 people that you should interview and you won't know any of those things. So I really would love to disrupt recruitment right now because still the whole world is still having that same methodology and criteria. Um, and, and I feel like that's what founders and investors, I think what the great opportunity is to have that really amazing cognitive diversity in their teams and their leaders. And so being able to, you know, just communicate with anyone because you now have the base, a team that's based, you know, with all those different sort of um, diverse perspectives and being able to manage that versus. Uh, so a lot of the challenges we see with leaders is, they're used to a certain style or a certain team. And certainly we've seen uh, one of the biggest challenges with high growth companies as they raise more money, they hire sort of ex-corporate or enterprise uh, leadership levels, executive levels, who then come with whatever the previous culture or the previous um, values, which sometimes may not be a, a, a clash or a conflict in, in certain leadership styles. And so, you know, be, being able to now... Yeah, recruit um, based on the, the motivations, uh, I feel like is going to be quite exciting. Uh, it's a quite exciting time. And, and now that's the new norm. Everyone's hiring and interviewing remotely. 
You have mm. to trust and be able to read. Um, well, David said all the right things. He seems like a great guy, you know, but but then it's not until you um, start working with the person going, oh, my God, you know, they're not communicating. They haven't shared any information. Oh, my God, they're the way that they, you know, demand things done. So um, I think the more data you have, um, being able to just start to disrupt that sort of very initial stage of that recruitment part, I think that's the biggest exciting opportunity around talent management. And then who knows, I, my next career, I could be, you know, the the, <laughs> the the next greatest data scientist or machine learning or conversational AI specialist, who knows? That's uh, actually, that's that's probably one of the most fascinating jobs I've ever seen, actually. I know um, I know the, the young lady who was programming um, one of the major superstar robots, and she was she was that behavioral program. I thought, that is a cool job to do something like that. But I'm seeing another here opportunity, and maybe, maybe a bit of a help to some of the listeners. I mean, this is also disrupting. I mean, if I had a school counselor that had that ability when I was in school, that would have saved me years of struggling around trying to figure <laughs> out who I am. And, and, and I see it now in university, certainly undergrad, but even mm-hmm. at the master's level. Um, I'm seeing that there is a lack where, I mean, is it possible that um, a student, third-year student, undergrad can go to your platform and try to figure out, now that they've learned something, they've got a little bit of skills, some experience behind them, they, they've worked on their um, soft skills by you know working within the community of being on campus, these types of things. Can they go online and get some insight into what could be career paths, possible career paths for them? Yeah, absolutely. Not just third-year students. You could be a first-year student. Um, and so we've also got high schoolers using the platform as well. Oh, really? A great, a great case study for us is we've partnered with the University of Technology Sydney back in Australia, Sydney, and we worked in a program called Tech Accelerator, and we we're working with undergrad engineering students. And we met uh, Rowan Smith, who's a mechatronics uh, undergrad, and um, we, he actually, his, um, his, his grandmother, his nan, um, suffered a stroke. And so he built a robotics um, a re- rehab to help stroke patients rehabilitate and work with physiotherapists. And so we were in this program and we were just blown away how the tool was able to give useful data and insights to these undergrad students. And in fact, he's, you know, so he not only founded his company, he got, you know, he was VC backed. He's found an industry sort of co-founder. He actually this year won top 30 Australian inventors under 30. He's, wow. He's 22. And it's, it's, it's incredible. So, um, and then I, we have another undergrad student who was a bachelor's of medical science and a bachelor of um, engineering who used a built a machine learning algorithm tool to be able to detect skin lesions. And so she's founded her company. And so so all of these universities, every single university has an entrepreneurship model um, module and they also have, um, you know, some sort of accelerator or incubation or some sort of program that helps, you know, put your ideas into action. I'm, in fact, working um, in, in two weeks with, you know, over 370 NUS National University of Singapore students to start to build that entrepreneurial muscle. So it starts with data and starts with awareness. And some of my best 
change work has been all students because they haven't been preconditioned of what the world's going to be like or what that workforce or what that first role model of the internship or the job they're about to do and so that they're really open to learning about themselves, learning about communication. I think the future of students is really about being, you know, assertive, being able to, you know, start to ask really big questions of what is it that that this works or doesn't work? I mean, certain, certainly I've seen in Asia, that's been one of the biggest gaps of not having this high level of tolerance, which is, you know, very accepting of everything, everything your professor says, or very accepting of, you know, what the curriculum or the program is and not doing enough questioning. Um, and I feel like the biggest opportunity is like the creativity is going to come from questioning, understanding, implementing, prototyping, um, and less of the person in the front who's the authority that tells you exactly what to do, that you start to, you know, question some of the data or the feedback because we're moving at such a rapid pace. Um, a lot of the, some of the, some of the, some of the, the programs or the curriculums that, that's been around for a period of time may not be relevant by the time this student graduate like you know in five years time if I graduate in four years time that market may have moved marketing has changed now it's all this new digital and social media and influences and and, you know and so so many things you know change so rapidly so I think being able to be able to evolve being able to adapt asking critical critical thinking critical questions um, and really the number one thing is to build your self-confidence and then you know, go after the internships that you want to. So some of my best uh, students just, I really want to do an internship. This is exactly what I want to learn. I want to learn how to build product. I want to learn about AI. I want to learn about, and so being very intentional about what you want to learn, you know, and and not leaving your fate to, you know, the professors or the curriculum or your parents who convinced you that, you know, investment banking or becoming an accountant or becoming a lawyer is is sort of that best career path. I think so many of the, those industries are being, services industries are being disrupted. So, um, you know, that, that's that's one thing I encourage now students. And, yeah, so you don't have to be a third-year third student. You can be any student to jump onto the platform and just to, to, to learn about yourself and get some self-awareness. Well, this is uh, this has been a fascinating discussion, and uh, you seem to be right in the nexus uh, of all this sort of accelerating change. And I think that's that's going to be sort of the key dynamic. I think going forward, I mean, change is inevitable. Change has always been, but the rapid pace of change and the number of things changing at the same time, I think, is going to be a really challenge for a lot of founders, entrepreneurs investors, graduates, for a lot of the community, even as you know, you get later on in your career and you want to do a career shift. I mean, that uh, the multiplicity of all of that is really unbound. But it's been a great conversation. I'm getting notes that uh, we're, we're getting to the end of our conversation, but it's a great conversation. And I want to thank you, Annie, for coming on. And uh, it's a fascinating role that you're playing, sort of, the, I don't want to call it the glue, but in the middle of all this, it's a fascinating role, and I think you're doing a great service to a lot of people, a lot of sectors of that. And I'll leave the uh, final statement up to you before I say thank you. Thanks, David. It's been a really awesome, as you know, I'm a bit of a people data geek, and so I love talking about this topic and talking about talent. Um, I think the most exciting opportunity is, you know, we're at a time where we can kind of now 
create the role. Like the, the future is you deeply understanding what your talents are and then creating that role for yourself in the world. Um, and it's less we're trying to, you know, um, fit into or mould ourselves into. Like I think this is such a great time because, uh, there's just so many things in the digital world that are not yet known. Um, and so just it's the new new technologies being created. So, um, you know, just use this time to, to really deeply understand what your strengths, what your talents, you know, do like working with people, what's the environment, get really, really curious and then and then really go for it. That's the number one thing around entrepreneurs. You know, they don't they don't ask for permission. They may ask, they they may ask, they don't, what's the what's the saying? They don't ask for oh. Yeah, I, I know that. I know it's better to ask. It's better to ask for forgiveness than ask. That's for right. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly it. So that was kind of a stole my my final line there. And so really, just just go for it. And and that's the number one things when I coach um, female founders as well. I'm like, just go for it. You have absolutely nothing to lose. There's everything to gain. Um, so really going for the careers and roles and experiences you want because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we may have a short period of time that we're here and so let's maximise the impact. And so um, I feel very blessed to be working with so many founders who care about, deeply, deeply care about big impact that they want to make in the world, ending poverty, giving, you know, um, offering, you know, access to clean water, some of some of the some of the most basic things or, you know, edutech companies who, you know, in remote communities, um, you know, trying to offer different ways so that they can have access to to education. And so I just feel like this is such a great time to really invest in yourself, deeply understand yourself, you know, work with a culture and people that you love showing up to work every day. And it does and it doesn't feel like work. So I feel like now in my 40s, I'm now, I'm there. I I don't <laughs> feel like I'm working. I just meeting amazing people from around the world every single day. Every single day is a delight. I never know what's going, you know, and then being able to just really support them, you know, whether it's communication, whether it's leadership, whether it's, you know, fundraising goals. It's just, you know, and I feel like, Everyone should come into work feeling that same way. The, the the cognitive panel, I asked a blue sky question. I moderated that panel and I said, if anything could happen, what would you like to uh, happen in terms of HR and talent? And one of the, the HR directors said, it'd be great to be able to bring my full self to work, to feel safe to bring yeah. my full self. And so I feel very blessed that I feel that every day. And so um, my last words would, I hope you find and go for, you know, go for a role where you get to bring your full self to work every day and there is no separation of your personal life or your professional life. It's just you and your talents and you bring everything. And so, and being able to embrace that. So thank you for an awesome inviting me to be on the near future podcast. Um, feel very very, very honored to be spending time with you. No, it's a, it's been a fantastic conversation. And I know for a lot of people, this is a big challenge. What am I going to do? The world is confusing. Um, and your advice and insight at the end there, I mean, and I think you're right. And if you could, if you could walk into any place feeling 100%, what could be better than that, right? Yeah. Exactly. And that's what and that's what I feel like, you know, you have a work, it's a, it's a family. Like at the end of the day, you, you know, spend a ridiculous number of hours, you know, you see, you know, you see these people more than you see your families. And so um, you know, go, go, 
go find your work yeah. family. Yeah. <laughs> okay. With that, then I want to say thank you, Andy, for coming on board, and um, thank you to all our listeners. And we will be back soon with more tales from the near future. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, David. Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX.